Hey there, friends. Lucifer Means Lightbringer here with part two of Odin Origins to talk about Bran Stark, everyone's favorite young aspiring tree wizard. If you haven't watched part one, please stop right here and go back because this is actually one big video chopped into three parts and it really won't make much sense if you don't watch them in order. Part one is called Odin Origins Blood Raven, and it is linked in the description below. Thanks to everyone leaving comments on the videos, and especially thank you to you guys signing up for Patreon and sending me donations via paypal.me slash mythicalastronomy. Those links are below also. I really appreciate that, guys. It means a lot. It enables me to do this, so doing me a solid here. And once again, just to head off any comments about my non-historically accurate Viking hat, no, the real Vikings did not wear horned helms. It's a pop culture misconception, however, I'm also a Minnesota Vikings fan, so I get to wear the silly hat. Thank you very much. All right, it's time for more Norse mythology and a song of ice and fire. There's a lot to say about Bran and Norse mythology. As the chained winged wolf, he's a pretty strong parallel to Fenrir, and when Jamie pushes him out of the window and later loses his hand, that's a lot like Tyr losing his hand. But we don't have time for that today. Today, we're just gonna look at how a couple of parts of Bran's story match these first two legends of Odin that we've just discussed. Bran's fateful climb to the top of the first keep of Winterfell in A Game of Thrones is full of foreshadowing of Bran becoming a green seer, and it contains extensive references to both Odin's hanging and his trading of his eye to drink from the waters of Mimisbrunner. First off, Bran starts his climb by Climbing a tree in the godswood, which is done to give us the metaphor at work here. Bran is climbing a great tree, and the castle of Winterfell is indeed named as a tree in this chapter, when it says, The place had grown over the centuries like some monstrous stone tree. Ergo, the castle built around the magic tree is itself a symbol of a giant tree, and climbing it makes Bran feel like he was lord of the castle in a way that even Rob would never know. Just as Odin is Lord of Yggdrasil and its nine realms, young Bran Stark is now Lord of this giant stone tree. And again, you can pretty easily see the foreshadowing here for Bran to take Bloodraven's place as Lord of the Weirwood Tree. Bran, whose name means Raven, among a few other things, does indeed like to perch up in his tree. It says that Bran could perch for hours among the shapeless, rain-worn gargoyles that brooded over the first keep, watching it all. So Bran is watching everything from his tree, just like Bloodraven does from his tree. Again, this is clear foreshadowing. The thing is, when we see Bran climbing his tree in that early chapter of A Game of Thrones, he of course ends up being thrown from the tower and subsequently trapped in a coma and hovering near death. But as we know, this leads to the opening of his third eye and the embrace of his green seer powers. Hey, wait, that sounds familiar. Yes, it's Bran's very own version of Odin's hanging from Yggdrasil. Just like Odin hanging from that windy tree for night's full nine until he spies and seizes up the runes. Comatose Bran is floating between life and death for an extended period of time, which ends with him seizing hold of powerful magic. The stone tree, Castle of Winterfell, that Bran fell from is playing the role of Yggdrasil here, as we saw. And just to top it off and sort of link everything together, we have another Odin figure, Bloodraven, using his weirwood magic from afar to contact Bran inside his coma dream. Now, George actually does include a specific nod to Odin's hanging right at the climax of Bran's dream, which I will quote here. Bran pulled himself up, climbed over the gargoyle, crawled out onto the roof. This was the easy way. 
he moved across the roof to the next gargoyle, right above the window of the room where they were talking. Bran sat astride the gargoyle, tightened his legs around it, and swung himself around upside down. He hung by his legs and slowly stretched his head down toward the window. The world looked strange upside down. A courtyard swam dizzily below him, its stones still wet with melted snow. Aha, Bran is hanging upside down, just as Odin is usually depicted hanging from Yggdrasil. And setting aside the exact method of hanging, we can simply say that Bran is in fact hanging from his great stone tree in order to see whatever secret activity is going on in that room. And look, I'll be the first to admit that Lannister incest isn't exactly the runes, but it is a powerful secret, so the comparison works. Well, that was a weird sentence to say. Anyway, you might have also noticed the line, the world looked strange upside down, which implies that hanging from the tree castle enables Bran to see the entire world. Meanwhile, two lines imply water below, just as Odin gazes into the waters below Yggdrasil to see the runes. The courtyard below Bran swims dizzily and looks wet with melted snow. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, recall that Odin falls as he seizes up the runes. And of course, Bran fell from the tower and is dreaming of falling at the moment that he finally embraces his magic, begins to fly, and awakens from the coma. Just to sort of put a button on things here, the monstrous stone tree that is Winterfell Castle also has dragons living in the caverns of its stone roots, just as Yggdrasil does. More dragons than any fool knows. And by the way, that passage that we quoted earlier about Winterfell being a stone tree has a line that we didn't read about it having roots that are sunk deep into the earth. So we should think about this tree as having roots and caverns below it. And of course, we're talking about the crypts of Winterfell here, which are located directly below the tower-like first keep that Bran climbs, hangs from, and then falls from. So yes, there are actually no less than three suggestions of dragons living there beneath Winterfell plus Jon Snow himself, a dragon of House Targaryen who has a recurring dream of walking the lowest levels of the crypts, down in the root zone of the stone tree. So first of all, we have the Maesters of the World of Ice and Fire informing us in their snootiest maester voice that the small folk of Winterfell and the Wintertown have been known to claim that the springs are heated by the breath of a dragon that sleeps beneath the castle. You can pretty much hear the eye rolling there, and although they do pass this off as foolish in the next sentence, the suggestion is there, and... In that same passage, the maesters themselves actually draw a comparison between Winterfell and Dragonstone and Valyria by saying that hot springs such as the one beneath Winterfell have been shown to be heated by the furnaces of the world, the same fires that made the Fourteen Flames or the Smoking Mountain of Dragonstone. Similarly, there are rumors that Vermax, the dragon of Prince Jaceres Targaryen, may have laid a clutch of eggs at Winterfell when Jaceres came there to parlay with Cregan Stark during the Dance of the Dragons. The idea of there maybe being warm places down there somewhere heated by the hot springs kind of make you think that maybe, just maybe, there could be something to this. Although on the whole, I'd have to say it doesn't seem likely. But either way, it does once again suggest the idea of dragons below the stone tree of Winterfell. And then finally we have the infamous Winterfell Dragon that Bran saw through Summer's eyes when Winterfell was being burned by Ramsay Bolton. The smoke and ash clouded his eyes, and in the sky he saw a great winged snake whose roar was a river of flame. He bared his teeth, but then the snake was gone. Behind the cliffs, tall fires were eating up the stars. 
All through the night, the fires crackled, and once there was a great roar and a crash that made the earth jump under his feet. I included a couple of extra lines there just to show you the apocalyptic, Ragnarok-like vibe of this scene. The world shakes, fires are eating up the stars, and so on. Bran, huddled down below the earth in the crypts and surveying the carnage through the eyes of his direwolf, appears to see a fiery serpent escape from the burning castle. That must have been the one heating the hot springs below, right? I'm kidding. This is almost certainly an optical illusion for the sake of symbolism. But this sure does make a nice parallel to Nidhogger, who is supposed to break free at Ragnarok to help destroy the world. I've also noticed that the smoke and ash was clouding the eyes of Bran's direwolf in this scene, which means that Bran is seeing through the ashes. Or perhaps the suggestion is of Bran seeing through the ash tree Yggdrasil, as Odin does since pretty much all of Bran's skin-changing scenes are foreshadowing his destiny as a green seer. And more importantly, since Martin actually does use the ash tree slash fire and ash symbolic wordplay quite a lot to refer to the sacred fire of the gods that is bestowed by the Weirwoods. And you can find out all about that in the Weirwood Compendium series. Now, at this very moment that Bran is seeing the apocalypse and the fiery serpent through summer, Bran himself is down in the dark caverns of the Winterfell Crypts, where he says he opened his third eye by being able to consciously skin change Summer at will for the first time. Just as he'll eventually wed the Weirwood Trees down in Blood Raven's Cave, which again parallels the Winterfell Crypts as the root zone of the Magic World Tree. So put it all together and what do you have? Bran down in a cave below the earth, opening his third eye and seeing through the ash, or through his green seer magic, if you want to say, to catch a glimpse of something that looks a lot like Ragnarok, complete with a dragon breaking free from the stone tree. Returning to Bran's fall from the tower and his awakening from the coma dream, we can actually find strong parallels to the story of Odin and Mimir's well as well, though it's mainly the eye-gouging part of the story and the attainder of wisdom as opposed to any drinking horns. Bran is much too young for drinking horns, you understand. Though the Umbers do come through Winterfell with drinking horns aplenty. In any case, as Bran is climbing towards his fateful encounter, I keep saying that, but it is very fateful, his encounter with Jamie's hand, he recalls a cautionary tale of old Nans about the bad little boy who climbed too high. It's very clearly a story told to Bran to scare him out of climbing, though that of course does not work. Old Nan told him a story about a bad little boy who climbed too high and was struck down by lightning, and how afterward the crows came to peck out his eyes. Bran was not impressed. There were crows' nests atop the broken tower, where no one ever went but him, and sometimes he filled his pockets with corn before we climbed up there, and the crows ate it right out of his hand. None of them had ever shown the slightest bit of interest in pecking out his eyes. But of course, Bran does fall. Well. He, he didn't fall, he was thrown, in fairness to Bran's climbing skill, thrown down by Jamie as he was climbing towards the so-called Broken Tower of Winterfell, which was broken in the past when it was struck by lightning. And just, just so you're not confused, he was climbing towards the Broken Tower, and he came to the first keep on the way, and that's when he overheard Jamie. So the scene with Jamie goes down at the first keep, but he was actually climbing towards the Broken Tower. That's where the crows hang out. And the Broken Tower was broken, by lightning, so it's a great parallel to the Bad Little Boy story. It places the lightning at the top of the tower, even if it doesn't actually strike Bran. He's climbing towards a tower where there is lightning at the top. So then in Bran's coma dream, we get a second parallel to the story of the Bad Little Boy, because 
The three-eyed crow actually pecks out Bran's eyes and, quote, blinds him with its wings. I'm flying, he cried out in delight. I've noticed, said the three-eyed crow. It took to the air, flapping its wings in his face, slowing him, blinding him. He faltered in the air as its pinions beat against his cheeks. Its beaks stabbed at him fiercely, and Bran felt a sudden blinding pain in the middle of his forehead, between his eyes. As you can see, it's a bit of a twist. In Old Nan's tale, the crows picking out the bad little boy's eyes is a bad thing, but here we see it turned around as the three-eyed crow helps awaken Bran from his coma with blinding pain and by pecking open his third eye. This is quite clever writing here. Martin has taken the eye-gouging element of the Mimir story and used it to fashion part of an entertaining story from Old Nan, which then turns out to be a symbolic metaphor for Bran's acquisition of magic, which George R. Martin borrowed from Odin. And that brings us back to the theme of Odin's stories about paying a great price to obtain magic. Needless to say, Bran has paid the price of his legs, but the nod to the loss of Odin's eye makes a nice touch here. Now, as I said, there is no drinking of anything here to parallel the water of Mimisbrunner, but going back to Jojen's language about green seers drinking from the green fountain, we could sort of stretch and say that Bran's opening of his third eye here in the dream is the beginning of the awakening of his green gifts, so in a sense, he's taking the first sip from the green fountain in this scene. Now, wouldn't it be lovely if there was a place somewhere in A Song of Ice and Fire that has a weirwood tree, a magic well, maybe an eye being thrown into that well, perhaps Bran and Bloodraven all together? Well, no. No, it wouldn't be, because that place is the Night Fort. That's why I've got my nice watch shirt on here. Gotta say the vows, protect us against all the spooky things and snarks and grumpkins coming from the other side. And of course, it actually is lovely for us who are on the hunt for Odin and Yggdrasil symbolism, so we can find it here at the Night Fort. Bran and his ragtag company reach the Night Fort in a storm of swords on their way north to find Bloodraven's cave, of course. And boy, howdy, does Martin ever take advantage of his first chance to write a scene at this most haunted of Westerosi castles. Like I said, Martin does fancy himself an occasional horror writer. So first, the Twisted Weirwood. The yards were small forests where spindly trees rubbed their bare branches together and dead leaves scuttled like roaches across patches of old snow. There were trees growing where the stables had been and a twisted white weirwood pushing up through the gaping hole in the roof of the domed kitchen. Anytime we see the word dome, we have to check to see if we might be talking metaphorically about the dome of the sky. And Martin does actually use that phrase elsewhere the dome of the sky. And this particular dome in the Nightford kitchen is very likely to represent the sky because we have a weirwood growing in the middle of the room. This is a trademark cosmic world tree setup. And the fact that the weirwood tree is described as twisted implies it as turning like an axis, like a celestial axis upon which the stars appear to turn. Even better, this is also a match for the tales which have Yggdrasil growing up through the center of the courtyard of Valhalla which is found in Asgard, the uppermost of the Nine Worlds. Although Yggdrasil is known by the name Leather in the courtyard of Valhalla for whatever reason. Everything has lots of names in Norse myth. 
Anyway, knowing that the Weirwoods are based largely on Yggdrasil, it's pretty hard not to think of that Valhalla courtyard setup when you read passages like this, from that same brand chapter of A Storm of Swords. The reeds decided that they would sleep in the kitchens, a stone octagon with a broken dome. It looked to offer better shelter than most of the other buildings, even though a crooked weirwood had burst up through the slate floor beside the huge central well, stretching slantwise toward the hole in the roof, its bone-white branches reaching for the sun. Aha, it's a huge central well, right next to our central weirwood tree. It's very easy to think of the weirwood tree growing up from the waters down in the bottom of the well, because we know that far below the Nightfort kitchens lies the talking weirwood face known as the Black Gate. In other words, there's some kind of much larger weirwood organism below the Nightfort, with the skinny young tree that we see bursting through the floor of the kitchens almost certainly growing up from the larger organism below, something like Yggdrasil growing up through the other realms to finally reach the courtyard of Odin's Hall. And just in case you're wondering about the implications of the Nightfort, home of the original knights king and queen, being compared to Valhalla, the Hall of Odin, well, I've conveniently made a series of videos which explains that. You want the playlist titled The Others, and in particular you want the videos A New Knight's King and Knight's King Azor High. The quick version is that just as Bloodraven and all the Green Seers are modeled after Odin, the idea of a Knight's King, a Great Other, or simply a Leader of the Others, is actually spelled out in the books through symbolism as being a kind of alt-Odin, a frozen evil Odin to rival the Green Seers. And although we haven't seen any sort of leader of the others in the books to parallel the Night King from the HBO show, there are of course many clues that one existed in the past and that more importantly, a new one will rise by the end of the story. And the figures who play this symbolic role of Night's King in the books People like Euron Crozai, Waymar Royce, or even Aemond One-Eyed Targaryen, and many others, are pretty much always draped in an icy White Walker version of Odin's symbolism. Maybe the easiest way to say it is that the original leader of the others seems to have been a green seer who went down some sort of dark path, even darker than the one that Bloodraven and Bran go down, I guess. So it figures that he would be cast as an evil Odin figure. Now, years ago, before the release of the very insane Forsaken Winds of Winter chapter, I had actually already named Euron Crozai Pirate Odin on Bad Acid. I think that name holds up pretty well, given what we saw through the eyes of Aaron Greyjoy in that Forsaken chapter. The original Knight's King of Legend was also a Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and as we're about to discuss, the position of Lord Commander is very much influenced by Odin in the same way that the Three-Eyed Crow is. Returning to the Night Fort, one might wonder as to which of Yggdrasil's three wells that we're supposed to be thinking of here, if any. It seems like Martin is referencing both the well of Mimir, as well as the spring of, and I couldn't find a pronunciation for this anywhere, so forgive me for just guessing here, Vergelamir, which is the one in Nivelheim, the land of mist and cold, which is also the abode of Nidhogger. Starting with Vergelamir, or however it's said, consider this bit from the Grimnismal of the Poetic Edda. Ek Tiener, the heart is called, that stands over Odin's hall, and bites from Leather's branches. From his horns fall drops into Vergomir, whence all waters rise. So in Odin's hall, that's Valhalla, there's a stag who bites from the upper branches of Yggdrasil, and from his horns falls dew that drips down into Vergomir. Now, as I said, Odin's hall is 
up above in Asgurd, updated pronunciation, I just looked up by the way, but the spring of Velgamir is found down below in Nivelheim, which is a completely different realm. That's that one where Nidhogger lives. It's the one of snow and ice. And in fact, it's said in one passage that Nidhogger actually lives in the spring, which is also said to be teeming with snakes in general. Talk about more snakes than any witless fool would know. So the night for it, it's like a very spooky, run-down Asgord, but the well's water is actually hundreds of feet below and should be like the Hvelgamir spring in Nivelheim, where the great serpent lives. And so I give you Hodor, throwing that stone down into the well and awakening something. Hodor, don't, said Bran, but too late. Hodor tossed the slate over the edge. You shouldn't have done that. You don't know what's down there. You might have hurt something or woken something up. Hodor looked at him innocently. Hodor? Far, far below, they heard the sound as the stone found water. It wasn't a splash, not truly. It was more a gulp, as if whatever was below had opened a quivering, gelid mouth to swallow Hodor's stone. Faint echoes traveled up the well, and for a moment Bran thought he heard something moving, thrashing about in the water. You know, I had always wondered why George thought to suggest a sea monster swimming around down in the well water here. I mean, the scene itself is an obvious nod to the Lord of the Rings and the Mines of Moria, sure, but instead of orcs or a balrog living down there, the suggestion is of a sea serpent, something that swims. But of course, according to Norse cosmology, as we've just learned, there should be a serpent down there, and if it's stirring, that means Ragnarok must be approaching. Or said another way, winter is coming. Sam Tarly coming up out of the well as he does in this chapter becomes even more interesting then because Sam is called a Leviathan several times and Leviathans are, first and foremost, sea dragons. Therefore, his coming up out of the well, which terrifies Bran and company in the moment, is actually another suggestion of the Nidhogger dragon breaking free for Ragnarok. Now, despite briefly performing the symbolism of serpents rising up out of the well, Sam actually draws a much stronger parallel to Heimdallr, who blows the Jalahorn at the onset of Ragnarok. Sam was given that ancient horn that Jon Snow found at the Fist of the First Men, you'll recall, which may be the Horn of Winter. Heimdallr is said to keep watch for the signs of the onset of Ragnarok from his dwelling in Himmenbjörg, where the rainbow-like Bifrost Bridge meets the sky. And it seems fairly clear to me that the wall, which shines in prismatic rainbow colors on many occasions, is more or less the Song of Ice and Fire parallel to the Bifrost Bridge. And that's where Sam and the entire Night's Watch, in fact, keeps watch for the others and the end of the world. Returning to Bran at the Night Fort, I did promise an allusion to Odin's eye being thrown into the well of Mimir. Now, of course, nobody actually throws their eye down the well. I'm pretty sure you'd remember that if that happened. But we do have a weirwood and a well, so we're essentially looking for some sort of symbol of an eye going down the well. And this is what we find. Pale moonlight slanted down through the hole in the dome, painting the branches of the weirwood as they strained up toward the roof. It looked as if the tree was trying to catch the moon and drag it down into the well. Old gods, Bran prayed, if you hear me, don't send a dream tonight. Or if you do, make it a good dream. The gods made no answer. All right, so the moon is seemingly being pulled into the well by the weirwood tree here. But can the moon be seen as the eye of a green seer somehow? Well, yes. It's like a three-step process, though. So first of all, there's a running symbolic parallelism between the moon and weirwoods. 
We've got the black gate talking weirwood face down below the night fort, which glows with milk and moonlight. Then there's the moon door in the eerie, which is made of weirwood. And of course, there's the doors of the house of black and white, which are half weirwood and half ebony with a giant moon face across both of them. And they also have cute little ebony chairs with white weirwood faces and white weirwood chairs with black ebony faces. Secondly, there are also several scenes where the moon is described as looking like a great eye, most notably in the Theon chapter of A Dance with Dragons, where Theon communicates with Bran through the Winterfell heart tree. This is during the wedding of Ramsay Bolton and Jane Poole dressed up as Arya, which takes place directly before the heart tree in the fashion of northern weddings. And it says, Up above the treetops, a crescent moon was floating in a dark sky, half obscured by mist, like an eye peering through a veil of silk. So given the weirwood moon parallel, and given that Bran does seem to be watching the events in the Winterfell Godswood, it seems possible that the language here is intended to make us think of Bran when the moon is watching like an eye. If he can watch out of a moon-colored weirwood face, why not a moon eye in the sky, right? I mean, the suggestion here is probably more poetic than literal, but it does seem intentional. What's absolutely certain is that young Bloodraven likes to go about the Seven Kingdoms in disguise, and when he does, he has terrific moon eye symbolism, especially at a scene at a castle called White Walls, which parallels the action here at the Night Fort. So first of all, wandering around in disguise is one of Odin's favorite things to do, right up there with fighting battles and seeking out magic. Odin has several nicknames, which means some version of the Wanderer. The thing is that no matter what disguise Odin wears, and he's particularly fond of the floppy, wide-brim hat that is often thought of a staple of wizard costumes, again, hey Gandalf, how's it going? Odin is always identifiable to the listener of the story, because he'll always have just one eye. And by the way, other nicknames for Odin reference his hat or his blinding, and one even names him as Blind Guest, which also hits the Wanderer thing. Bloodraven is caught pulling this exact routine in a scene from a short story called The Mystery Knight, which is one of the Duncan Egg books, of course. And again, this scene has several important parallels to Bran's Nightfort scene. Dunk whirled through the rain. All he could make out was a hooded shape and a single pale white eye. It was only when the man came forward that his shadowed face beneath the cowl took on the familiar feature of Sir Maynard Plum, the pale eye no more than the moonstone brooch that pinned his cloak at the shoulder. Now, Sir Maynard Plum is actually Lord Bloodraven in disguise, as the story makes clear, and here the optical illusion makes it appear as though his moonstone brooch is actually a single eye. Not only is this a very sneaky way for George to have Bloodraven pull the Odin in disguise trick, now we can see that Bloodraven's eye can be like the moon, or we can say that the eyes of the green seers can be like the moon more generally. What's even better is that Dunk is actually standing right next to a well in this moment when Bloodraven appears out of the mist doing his best Odin impression. So just to spell out the visual parallel, at the night fort, we have the well, the weirwood tree, and the moon eye above. And then over here at White Walls, we have the well, the weirwood colored blood raven, and blood raven's moonstone eye. The parallels go further too, because White Walls, well, it's made of white stone, that's how it got the name, but it also has white rafters made of weirwood. And it's located right by the God's Island, the Isle of Faces. So there's tons of weirwood associations here. And then finally, it belongs to a Lord Ambrose Butterwell 
just to call our attention to the well. So in other words, the entire white castle is serving as a weirwood symbol, and the castle well is highlighted by the name of its lord, Butterwell, whose first name Ambrose means immortal. And doesn't that make sense for you Sabrina fans, right? Ambrose means immortal. He's, and that guy's like, what? He's hundreds of years old or something, right? Hey friends, it's very, very post-production LML, like three, three weeks extra beard growth post-production LML. One last tip on Ambrose Butterwell. The, the name Butterwell is not just to call attention to the well. Uh, my favorite work of comparative mythology is called Hamlet's Mill because one version of the cosmic axis symbol, apart from the world tree, is a mill. Basically anything that can churn, a whirlpool also works. We see that sometimes. The cosmic mill is a very popular metaphor. It ties back to Amlody, the original tale that Hamlet is taken from. And so Lord Butterwell, the name implies not only a well, but a cosmic axis. So it really makes us think of the night for it, where we have the well and the cosmic axis weirwood, you know, breaking through the dome of the sky. So it's yet another parallel between White Walls and House Butterwell and the Night Fort. Very cool. It's, it's just, it's there's always one more thing. You can always take this thing further. It's, uh, it's lots of fun. I hope you guys are enjoying the video. Now back to three weeks ago, me. Uh, Dunk was standing by a well in this scene because he'd actually just been attacked by a fellow named Alan Cockshaw, who meant to throw Dunk down the well. But instead, Dunk, fed him a stone, meaning that he broke his teeth with a rock and then threw him down the well instead. And then back over at the night fort, we have Dunk's descendant, Hodor, throwing a stone down the well too. So the idea of throwing stones down the well is present in both scenes. This is done not only to place the scenes in parallel, but because we're supposed to connect Bran, seeing the weirwood tree appear to pull the moon down into the well with the idea of Bloodraven's moonstone eye being thrown into the well, a la the Well of Mimir. And all of this sort of creates a big cosmic parallel to the Well of Mimir, where the moon is the eye that gets sacrificed. And of course, if you know anything about the Long Night theories on this channel, it's all about sacrificing the moon, right? So the old gods, the Weirwoods, they're the ones who demand the moon eye sacrifice because they're the ones who bestow magic power, right? Now, one final layer to this is that Bran ultimately goes down the well, in that he, well, goes down the well to reach the Black Gate, talking wayward face, and then cross over to the other side of the wall so that he can continue his journey to find Blood Raven's cave. This essentially makes Bran a literal embodiment of the sacrifice of Odin, as the Weirwood has actually pulled Bran down the well and then eaten him, because recall that going through the Black Gate talking wayward face means that you have to go through the open maw meaning that it eats you. So Bran is fully a sacrifice to the old gods, right? He's going to be, in some sense, eaten by the Weirwoods, just like his mentor Bloodraven. So it seems that in A Song of Ice and Fire, you don't just give your eye or your legs, but rather your whole self to obtain the ultimate magic. And by the way, Bloodraven uses the name Plum because he's nothing more than a tasty morsel for the ever-hungry Weirwoods. Chomp chomp. And of course, Bran's name also alludes to Corn Bran, and he's always feeding his corn to the crows. So yet another implication of the Greenseers being eaten or fed to the Weirwoods. And then there's the Jojen paste thing. Again, <laughs> the Jojen paste. <laughs> always with the Jojen paste. Oh yes, and uh, one more thing. Since the seed casing at the center of a plum is called a stone, the alias 
Maynard Plum actually implies Bloodraven as yet another stone to be thrown down the well and sacrificed to the old gods, which of course happened like 50 or 80 years ago or something. Hey guys, it's post-production Silly Costume LML here again, and you know, sometimes I research and write a whole script and record it and edit the video, that takes a while, only to discover some new tidbit of lore that I really wish I had included but forgot somehow. Such is the case here, and actually, it's really bad because I've been looking at these connected scenes at the Night Fort and White Walls for like four years, only to just find this latest bit of symbolism just this past week. It's one of those ones where George is using the symbolism and lore of a very obscure house involved in a scene to enhance the meaning of the scene. And those are some of the best finds, in my opinion. So we're still thinking about Blood Raven's eye being like the moon and other things which go down the well. And now check out this quote from the end of the story after Blood Raven has officially come to White Walls and very neatly cleaned up the very sad second Blackfire Rebellion. The only blood that was shed that day came when a man in service to Lord Verwell began to boast that he had been one of Bloodraven's eyes and would soon be well rewarded. By the time the moon turns, I'll be fucking holes and drinking Dornish Red, he was purported to have said, just before one of Lord Costain's knights slit his throat. Drink that, he said, as Verwell's man drowned in his own blood. It's not Dornish, but it's red. Okay, so the man in service to Lord Verwell, emphasis on well, is one of Bloodraven's eyes, meaning one of his spies, and he's talking about the moon turning. And also being well rewarded. Let's not forget that. He's gonna be well rewarded, yeah. I just found that like this morning as I'm putting this video up. Ah. I don't know if Verwell's man is telling the truth about serving Lord Bloodraven here, but the Verwell sigil does look an awful lot like Bloodraven's. I mean, an awful lot. It's a silver wyvern on a black field with red striping. Sorry, I don't do the fancy heraldry words around here. As opposed to a white dragon on a smoke gray field breathing scarlet flame. The name Verwell breaks down to the word ver or veer, and well, and the word vir, V-Y-R, means man, and has a shared etymology with were, as in werewolf, or perhaps even as in the weir in weirwood trees, which are, of course, man trees, just like werewolves are man wolves. The vir in virwell might also be meant as a fragmental variant of wyvern, since that's their sigil, so it seems like the word verwell is suggesting a well associated with men and wyverns, or dragons. So now this makes sense, right? The man in service to Lord Verwell is one of Bloodraven's eyes. He's a man dragon who should drown in a well, or perhaps a serpent dragon living down in a well like Nidogger. Verwell's man is speaking of celebrating new riches and women and red wine when the moon turns, but instead drowns in red blood, which makes us think of the moon drowning in general, of course. And just to be extra cheeky, Martin gave us exactly one historical member of House Verwell, and he's a fellow named Egon Verwell, who was captain of the guards at Highgarden. Egon, or should I say, Igon, yeah, Igon down the well. I mean, that's what I've been trying to say, right? That's the Mimir's well story. Igon down the well. Okay, I, I, I'm laying it on thick here, but this is exactly how Martin consistently uses the minor houses to augment the symbolism of a scene with layers and layers of repeating ideas, as we see here with House Verwell and House Plum. 
Okay, it's time for Odin Origins Part 3, Jon Snow, which you'll see on the screen below you shortly, unless you're watching this one on the day it came out, in which case you'll have to wait till tomorrow. I'm really excited about Part 3. We're gonna finally uncover the source of all Jon's anger and rage. We're gonna break down all this wolves and ravens skin-changing stuff like never before. So I'll see you there, and be sure to leave a comment below, and as always, let's salute the Patreon sponsors that make it possible for me to make videos like this and buy silly hats.